0: Okay, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. We're talking about the resurrection, and this is a great verse with which to start. Particularly as in this first session, we're looking at the resurrection as proof. Uh, in many ways, the proof of Christ's teaching, but also the proof, really, of, of 4,000 years of, of church history, if you like, not church history, but 4,000 years of biblical history. So what does it say in Acts 1, 3 that's so important? Well, it says this to whom he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. It talks about infallible proofs. Now, what it's actually meaning there is that there's no doubt that the resurrection actually occurred. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm one of these people who actually... Uh, had to work things through in my head before my heart caught up with, with it. When I was beginning to explore Christianity, I, I got their head first and then heart followed. Uh, but one of the things that was really important to me when I was trying to get my head around this whole concept of what God has come to do and why he's come to do it, was to look at the resurrection. It seemed to me that that was absolutely vital. Uh, it seemed to be pivotal, really. Uh, yes, the cross was 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 unique and, and, and particularly Uh, significant in our salvation. You can't get away from the fact that the cross is the moment where God was reconciling all things to himself, dealing with sin and dealing with the consequences of the fall. But actually the resurrection was something that really stood out to me. If the resurrection is true, then everything else fits together. And when you're looking at the resurrection, there are some things that really do help you just in terms of the proof, in terms of the resurrection. One of the things is that you can check out the documents and check their historical accuracy, and, and that's quite interesting. But also, when you're looking at that, you, you've only got certain options, really, uh, when you're looking at did the resurrection happen or not. So, there's no doubt that the tomb was empty. Um, even, the, even the authorities recognized that the tomb was empty. So, your options are basically really down to the fact that either Jesus rose from the dead or someone stole the body. <laughs> uh, now, if the disciples stole the body, then they are remarkable people because they managed to keep up the pretense in the face of incredible persecution. And you'd have thought that at some point, if they'd hidden the body, one of them would have cracked, you know? I'll tell you where it is, it's hidden so and so and such and such. See what I mean? Under that kind of pressure. But no one cracked. And the other thing is that not only did, did they not crack, but they were actually living a level of life with a level of confidence and a boldness in proclamation that indicated a transformation. They were not the same people that they were before. And when they talked about the resurrection of Jesus, they were also implying that they'd got that same resurrection life of Jesus on the inside of them. So those kind of things were things that were beginning to to attract me to it. Some of the other things that are around, like the swoon theory, that maybe Jesus didn't really die, but when he was laid in the cold tomb, he revived. You know, there are a whole lot of things like that. I mean, if someone has gone through the whole process of crucifixion and swooned, and then manages to push back the stone and come out and go, here I am, you know, alive, it would be quite extraordinary. And then the thought of anyone else stealing the body. I, you know, with the rate that Christianity was going, if someone else had stolen that body, they would have come out in the open and said, this is where it is. So just even looking at those kind of things, I think the resurrection is something that stands in history as a fact that it's, it's almost impossible to deny. I know scientific evidence won't help you there because scientific evidence is dependent on repeatable experiments. And the very fact that the resurrection is not a repeatable experiment is why it's so important. If everyone was rising from the dead every time we put them in a grave, it would give evidence of the resurrection, but it would take away the uniqueness of Christ's resurrection. So it's the very fact that it isn't a repeatable scientific experiment that actually gives the resurrection its significance. But even though it's not, if you like, scientifically provable, there is a historical justification that you can take hold of and say it, it stands up historically. So that's just a little bit on that kind of proof. But what I want to do is to actually think about the way that Jesus claimed that his resurrection would prove his teaching. It would prove his claims. And I know the claims of Christ in his teaching are not always overt. I think that if they were, you'd have had some big question marks because someone who goes around saying, you know who I am, don't you? You know, I am the son of God and all the rest of this. You would think, why are they having to say it all the time? Is it that they're trying to convince themselves as well as convincing you? Just think for a moment, you know, there's a lady who sometimes appears in Bromley who looks remarkably like the queen, but she is not the queen. But she has to try and convince you that she is. Now the real queen doesn't have to convince you. It was an occasion once when she was shopping in Scotland when she was in Balmoral and she arrived at a small shop and someone said to her, you look remarkably like the queen. To which she replied, how very reassuring. <laughs> but there you go. So, <laughs> so but if, if you are that person, you don't have to boast. And Jesus never boasted. His claims were, were much more covert than that. The fact that he forgave sin. The fact that he, he talked about God as his father and talked as if he was equal with God, all of these things were were there as claims. And and they were clear enough to the people of his day for them to crucify him for blasphemy. So they had no doubt that he was actually claiming to be God's son, the promised Messiah. But for him, the proof of his claim was going to be the resurrection. When people asked for a sign, he said, I'm not going to give you a sign except the sign of Jonah. (laughs) As Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, so will I be in the the earth. And and then he talked about the temple as well, you know, destroy this temple and in three days I'll I'll build it again. So he was actually making the resurrection the proof for who he is as a person in the midst of his teaching. And some of the things that the resurrection proves are really, really important to get hold of. And I want to mention three really as we're looking at this. Uh, because I think that as we look at these, they'll encompass everything. The first one is about the seed. So you go right back into Genesis. And right there in Genesis chapter 3, you know that at the time of the fall, you've got that challenge that comes from the Lord as he speaks into the situation. And he talks and says this, that the seed of the woman shall bruise your head, he says this to the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. So this is like the first announcement of the redemptive plan. that There's going to be a seed that comes from this line of humanity that is actually going to triumph over the devil. So the serpent had come and he tempted in the garden, led that rebellion of the heavenly host before the creation. And here we've got a statement that actually when the seed comes, he's going to bruise the serpent's head. But it says that the heel of the seed will be bruised. So when we're looking at the victory of the seed, and we're going to go on from that to look at the success of the sacrifice, and then at the seal of the succession, because that's going to help us navigate our way through this. When we're talking about the victory of the seed, we need to take on board the fact that if it wasn't for the resurrection, what happened to Christ on the cross would not look like a bruising of the heel. It would have looked like the total annihilation of the one who'd come to save us. Can you see that? So when that's put there in the first place, that declaration to the devil, the Satan, the serpent in the garden, (laughs) that the one that comes from the seed of the woman will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel, there's an implication there that the greater damage is going to be done to the devil. (laughs) And yet there must have been a moment (laughs) when the devil thought that he'd won. (laughs) When Christ died on the cross, it was as if, you know, it looked as if it wasn't just a bruising of the heel. But the fact that Christ rose from the dead really puts that whole thing into perspective. I'm glad that the wounds of Jesus still speak. But it's only the wounds of Jesus that are speaking. He is alive. (laughs) It was a bruising of the heel. Can you see that that's really an important concept to get across and it's not just that it's it's a bringing together of the whole of history if you go back and you can see that from the moment that the seed was announced you're looking to see how god's unfolding that in redemption's plan so you see god call abraham and abraham has a son ishmael who is not the chosen seed but then he has the son of promise, Isaac. Now, Isaac is not the seed. (laughs) He's, if you like, he's a a symbol of the seed. He's He's a picture of the one who is to come. And so when the promises are given to Abraham about, through your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed, Galatians, and Paul writing in Galatians, makes it clear that that's actually referring to Jesus, that Jesus is the one through whom all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And also when it looks at the seed, and in Romans the emphasis comes out because the argument is that you, see, you might be tempted to think that because of of course the Jews would claim we're, we're the children of Abraham. But Paul, obviously, as, as the apostle to the Gentiles, is keen, is keen to come up with an argument that actually proves that, that we as Gentiles are also part of that seed. And the way he does it is actually to say, that there was a promise given to Abraham that actually preceded the circumcision. So therefore, there's a sense in which it was an inclusive promise. Even though the seed had to come after Abraham had been circumcised, there was a sense in which the inclusivity of that promise brings us all in. But for our purposes, when we're looking at this, we are only part of that seed because of the power of the resurrection. We can only be counted as that because we are born into Christ's family. So this whole concept of of blessing the nations through the seed and the concept of the the seed that's going to bruise the serpent's head and the raising up of that seed so you can see that what happened on the cross was just a bruising of the heel and not a total annihilation of of the Messiah that had been sent. All of this comes together to really bring home to the fact to us the fact that, that God, right from the beginning of history, had everything in hand. I love this. This, is, this to me is why, why, why I just so enjoy teaching the Bible. Because the whole thing fits together. Right from the moment there's a fall, there's a redemptive plan that begins to unfold. And when he starts talking about the seed right there in the garden, you know that God's going to follow that right through. And he sends his son to be that seed. Fully human, fully divine, absolutely able to to take our place on the cross and to to suffer on our behalf. But at the same time, the fact that he's in there defeating the enemy is part of God's redemptive plan. And of course we're going to go on to see, and you need to just put this a little bit parked at the moment because we're going to talk about this a bit later, that in fact what God is also doing is, is engaging us in redemption's plan as well. But in the end, we are also going to be playing our part in bruising Satan under our feet too. It says, the God of peace will bruise Satan under your feet shortly. So, we're all engaged in this. <laughs> it's important that we understand that the cross was a triumph and the resurrection proves that the seed that was promised in the Garden of Eden has been victorious and bruised the serpent's head. I know that we still have to suffer the enemy in his death throes, but at least there is death throes. (laughs) He's had that fatal blow on the cross. And I think that's really important because I know very often when we're talking as Christians, we do realize, quite rightly, that that big work, the greatest work in the whole of human history was on the cross. I know sometimes people want to focus on the incarnation. Isn't it incredible that God became flesh? Yes, it is absolutely incredible that God became flesh. But he became flesh for a reason. He didn't just become flesh to sort of live amongst us and frustrate us. Because to be honest, it would be frustrating, wouldn't it? If you got the perfection of Jesus and God's saying to you, now all I'm asking is that you behave like that. And you'd be left really frustrated. It's like that annoying situation at school where there was one kid in the class who knew everything and did he really bless you? Sometimes it was really quite frustrating, wasn't it? Or you might have been that kid in the class, I don't know. (laughs) But for most of us, (laughs) it wasn't. And we're aware of that. That things that, that where you just set an example without being empowered to fulfill that example can be really frustrating. So Jesus didn't just come in the flesh to frustrate us. He came in the flesh to do something for us, which he described as giving his life as a ransom for many. That's why he'd come. He came to live amongst us, but he came to die for us. And it's really important to grasp this. And we need to hold this because it is the central point that on the cross, God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself. This was the big plan, the big moment in the whole of history that was actually going to deal with everything that had gone before and everything that was going to come afterwards. It's the pivotal point in history. It's the point where God deals with sin. It's the point where God deals with rebellion. It's the point where God willingly pays the price that we should have paid ourselves. It's the point at which he can then say to us, you are justified, you are legally acquitted, you can walk away from the court of the Lord as a free person because the price that you should have been paid has been paid for you. That's the cross. It's the cross that enables us to be forgiven. It's the cross that was being represented when Aaron, all those years ago, would take the sacrifice on that day of atonement into the holiest place and offer the blood to secure a year of forgiveness for the people of God. That was being symbolised. But of course Aaron had to offer for his own sin as well as for the sins of the people. And it had to be offered every year because it wasn't a perfect sacrifice. But when you come to Jesus, he is able to come as the perfect sacrifice the representative who can offer himself for all of us so that we can confidently say that because Christ died, the price has been paid. And that's wonderful. And we need to preach it. We need to preach it loud and strong and clear and say there is forgiveness for sin. There is reconciliation with God. The barrier has been broken down. Not only between God and man, but between man and man as well so that there can be unity and reconciliation on the earth. The cross achieved it. No wonder when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was able to shout out, It is finished! And it was a shout of victory. He didn't shout, I am finished. He shouted, It is finished! I've done it! Just as those priests with the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders stepped into the Jordan as the children of Israel entered the promised land and had to stand there until every single person had got clean across. Jesus hung on that cross and as it says in Isaiah 53, he saw the travail of his soul and he was satisfied. In other words, he knew that he'd done enough when he shouted, it is finished, to secure salvation for everyone who's prepared to repent and believe and receive it by faith. He knew he'd done enough. But he also knew that when he was hanging into that cross, it was was a moment where he felt that separation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took our sin upon himself. He sensed that separation, but even so, right in that moment of death, he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Now that's amazing, isn't it? (laughs) That even in a sense of separation, he's prepared to say, Father, I'm trusting you. And what was he trusting for? Well, he was trusting for resurrection. (laughs) I know you can see that there's a sense in which it was the power of his life that raised him up. But also there was an element of vindication in this, because the father raising the son after that crucifixion was the father setting his seal upon the fact that the work is completed. So Jesus said, it is finished. But actually, the success of what was done, the success of the sacrifice, was settled when the father raised his son from the dead. Otherwise, we'd just be sort of living in hope, wouldn't we? (laughs) I believe that what Jesus did on the cross really, really achieved everything that it was meant to achieve. But we can have confidence that it achieved everything that it was meant to achieve. We can have confidence that the price has been paid. We can have confidence that we've been reconciled to God because the Father raised the Son. And of course, this is how it was preached on that day when the Holy Spirit was given and Peter was out there on the street. He made it absolutely plain. And and you can read this. It's in Acts 2. Let me just turn over the page and read it for you. Acts 2.23, he says this, him, referring to Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you've taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So can you see that that's an incredible proof, isn't it? So we've, we've not only got the proof that Jesus was teaching right, when he was talking about coming as the the Son of Man, we've also got that sense that he was teaching right when he said his life was going to be given as a ransom for many. And it vindicates the work of the cross. But there's one other thing that came up repeatedly in the ministry of Jesus. Not only was he referred to as the Son of Man, but he was also referred to as the Son of David. And he also talked about coming to establish a kingdom. (laughs) So there's a whole sense in here about what is that kingdom and how is his kingship being established? And of course, when Jesus was facing Pilate and Pilate was asking, are you a king? He didn't say, no, I'm not a king. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. (laughs) So he was really saying, my kingdom is not the kind of kingdom as you think it's going to be. But he's not denying that his kingdom is absolutely important. Now, just as we backtrack right to that beginning point and we've seen that we've got that promise in the garden that the seed of the woman had bruised the serpent's head, and we could have actually gone back even further to Revelation 13.8. And you say, how do you go back to Revelation 13.8? How does that come before Genesis? Well, it does, actually, because in Revelation 13.8 we're told that the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world, which is an interesting point. I know there's a slight question over the interpretation of that verse in some people's minds, but the whole of Scripture to me indicates that the plan of God was established before the fall. The fall did not take God by surprise. (laughs) As I read it, there must have been some kind of rebellion in the heavens because God is light. There's no darkness in him at all, and yet we've got darkness in the world. Where did it come from? It must have come from some kind of rebellion, and we, we, we can see that in terms of it being a rebellion amongst the angelic hosts. But once that had happened, you would have thought that God says, right, okay, we will now abandon all the plans because there's been a hiccup. Pretty big one. <laughs> and there's a risk. You know, if we go ahead and we, we put, mankind upon the earth, and and give mankind a choice. and The choice basically is, do you want more of me or do you want to do more in your own strength? Two trees representing that. That there's a risk that humanity, particularly if this fallen angelic host starts influencing, that they're going to choose the wrong thing. (laughs) That instead of choosing life and a closer relationship with me, they could end up choosing to be eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, relying more on their own wit, their will, their, their personality, their intellect, rather than on me. Of course, in doing that, they're going to lose what spiritual life they do have, but you know, they're gonna think they're alive because they're gonna carry on as before, and there's a risk of this. But you see, God, right there in the beginning, was determined that somehow that had got to be put right. And part of the reason why he he wanted to do it the way that he has done it is because he wanted the humanity that he was creating to actually be involved in the redemptive plan that he was unfolding. It wasn't just enough to say, right, let's get the the, the devil out of the way and go on with the scheme. No, no, let's go on with the scheme. In America, you can't say scheme. That's a a negative term, all right? Go on with the plan, all right? (laughs) Let's go on with the plan and involve this humanity in the plan. So that as humanity comes into redemption, humanity can actually be involved in dealing with the rebellion that has gone before and begin to be part of putting everything back in place. So we've got this amazing situation, if we go right back, that we've got God actually saying that he wants to provide the sacrifice. That he's prepared to be the seed. And as we move through, we begin to see that God is also raising up people who can demonstrate and prophesy this kingdom. This whole plan of God to, to, to establish a people that will actually be empowered to be part of the redemptive plan. That's amazing, isn't it? And so what you find is that as you go through the Old Testament, not only do you get all the illustration of Abraham and offering Isaac, and in a sense receiving him from the dead again, so that's a picture of resurrection. You don't only get the fact that in the wilderness, Moses actually, introduces that whole sacrificing priesthood that was so important that God was speaking to him about. Not only do we find when we go into the Promised Land that you've got judges that are setting that example. Not only do we see Moses acting as a mediator between man and God as an illustration of that which is to come, but we find that there's a point when God is introducing concepts of kingship. And actually, he he is preparing for this even when you're reading the book of Ruth because he's actually lining up David's line even before Saul is put in place as the first king. And then when David comes to the throne, which is God's choice, we see that God actually speaks to David and and we can read this in, in 2 Samuel because there comes a moment when God establishes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. And as part of that, he is saying to David that that there will be someone from his house who will reign forever. There will always be a son of David on the throne. And you think, hold on a minute, I I know I've read my Old Testament. I know that, that when they came back from the exile and during the time of the exile, there were no kings on david's throne (laughs) and you've got that moment when the line seems to have ended (laughs) even though actually some of the governors were appointed from the royal line but all of that was really because the the fulfillment of david's line is not in a succession of of kings that come from that that specific pedigree, one after the other. It's setting everything up for the rule and reign of Jesus as the son of David. And so we then have this challenge that how is that going to be affirmed? (laughs) Because we've said that the work of the seed has been affirmed by the resurrection. We've said that the work on the cross is affirmed by the resurrection. So how can we see this, this kingdom being ushered in through the resurrection? Well, it is, because in order to fulfil that commitment to be the one who sits on the throne of David for all eternity, it's going to mean that Jesus has to be raised from the dead. So he was raised, yes, to make intercession for us, he was raised to do these things, but in order to establish that kingdom and that kingdom rule, the resurrection is absolutely key to what God is doing. There are so many other things that we could bring out from this. But I think what I want to do is to really just make it very clear, if it hasn't been already, that one of the things that we're seeing in all of this is that there's this absolute commitment on God's heart to raise us up with Him. And so if I could just read back into Isaiah 53, I. Any excuse to read Isaiah 53, you know. I I still remember when I hadn't quite made up my mind about the things of God, being in a church service, very critically, I used to sit there very critically, judging the sermons and everything else. And someone started reading Isaiah 53. And I was so shocked that this was in the Old Testament that the only conclusion I could come to at the time was that someone had slipped it in I just couldn't think, I just couldn't get my head around the fact that it was all so clearly prophesied. Now, I've discovered since that you can find it in all sorts of other places, Psalm 22, for example, and so on. But, but just Isaiah 53 really sort of, wow, just caught me out. So let me read from verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin and made intercession for the transgressors. I couldn't actually get my head around that. I thought that was definitely someone slipping that in afterwards. But it's just so powerful, isn't it? But can you see that we often go there and see that as a passage that speaks about the cross. And it surely does speak about the cross. But there's a whole lot in there about the resurrection that we often miss. He shall prolong his days. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. It's like, it's there, isn't it? <laughs> he doesn't only die on the cross, but he comes back to see the fruit of that and to establish that kingdom. And establishing that kingdom is, is just so much on God's heart. I don't know how you feel about this, but he really counts you in. He really counts you in. When you look in Hebrews chapter 2 and you, you, see, you see Jesus as it is standing in the throne room of heaven before the Father, it talks about, I and the children that you've given me. And I don't know whether your mind goes to this, but mine does. I just like that sense of we're standing together in the presence of the Lord, with Jesus as our captain, who's brought us into his salvation. Do you have that sense? We're part of his kingdom. We're part of his redemptive plan. And that resurrection of Jesus has given us proof that as the seed, He's bruised the serpent. As the sacrifice, He's secured our salvation. And as the risen Saviour, He is establishing a kingdom of which we're part. And I'm going to say a whole lot more about what that means for us. Because I know that Jesus says, because I live, you will live also. We're not meant to be a kingdom of inadequate soldiers that are not equipped for the fight. We're meant to be a kingdom of citizens that have got the power of God on the inside of us so that we're equipped for all that God has got for each one of us. So just recapping, I want to just draw out three unique things about Jesus. First of all, yes, he was a prophet. You know that it was promised in the Old Testament that God would raise up a prophet like unto Moses. And, you know, people have sort of discussed How do we see Jesus? Do we see him as a prophet like under Moses? And it's very interesting that when the apostles were taking that verse and arguing from it, they didn't spend a lot of time working out how Jesus was like Moses. I mean, you could pick up things. that He was a mediator between God and man, and all of that could come out. But what they did pick up was the word raised up. God will raise up a prophet like unto Moses. And so they come to that verse and they say, the proof that Jesus is the prophet is the fact that he has been raised up, (laughs) pointing to the resurrection. It's quite incredible, isn't it? So Jesus is the prophet who was prophesied. He is the seed that was prophesied in the garden. He is the lamb that was slain, that's prophesied in Revelation 13.8. He is the one who was prophesied in a sense when we were seeing Isaac coming back with Abraham from Mount Moriah. He's the one who was prophesied when you were looking at the fact that a king was going to come. He's the prophet who was prophesied. But then, unusually, he's also the priest who was the sacrifice. He didn't come and offer someone else. He, he offered himself. And I think that's just so important. And I think for some people, theology goes a little bit astray when they start thinking of Jesus the victim without being the priest. Because then you end up with this idea that maybe it was the father who was victimizing the son. And yet, well, you've got to realize this, that Jesus was willingly giving himself that right there, before creation began, he was willingly giving himself. And he came to give himself a ransom for many. That whole relationship between the Father and the Son is so close that when it says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, it shows that the level of unity there was exceptional. And so that sense of the the priest being the sacrifice, is extraordinary but then we discover that jesus is not just the king that comes at the end of david's line but he was the king for whom david's line was set up (laughs) which is an interesting way of putting it isn't it he was the original thought he was the anointed who was declared to be the one who's going to rule from Zion's hill. And so what we see in the unfolding of the Old Testament, leading right up to this resurrection moment, is that everything is being gathered together. And when Jesus is raised from the dead, the uniqueness of the resurrection, the uniqueness of the resurrection, amazing. I know we can think about, well, Enoch was caught up, Moses was never found, (laughs) Lazarus was raised from the dead, but There's a uniqueness about the resurrection of Christ that we need to hold on to. So that's where we're going to leave this first session, talking about the proof of his teaching ministry. And I hope that's just given you a little bit of a feel as to where we're going to go. And I hope you're excited about what's going to come next. But I just want to take a moment just to say thank you. Let's thank God for what he's done. Lord, as we bow our heads before you, we just want to say thank you for the incredible plan of redemption the amazing fact that you continue with the plan in the face of rebellion and decided that we should be part of that whole redemptive program we want to thank you for the centrality of the cross and for all that it accomplished and we want to thank you for the the resurrection that we're looking at today we're going to see the power of it and the impact of it but right now we want to thank you for the proof that it brings and give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.